Meet me on the softer side. Meet me on the softer side. Softer side of your heart. Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. You can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com, where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online. You can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. But I'm a little nervous and excited to be introducing Dennis Cooper tonight um, in his new novel, The Marbled Swarm. Um, Dennis uh, used to live up the street, and I've been working here a long time. And um, when he would come in and talk to me, it made me feel pretty cool. So it really helped it get over the fact that I was being paid minimum wage, you know. Um, so please help me welcome uh, writer and uh, that I admire and one of my favorite people, Dennis Cooper. Thank you, Steve. Um, uh, um, in Russia, there's this, in uh, Moscow, there's this movie theater, and it's for um, English-speaking tourists and um, English-speaking people who don't speak Russian who live there. And they show Russian movies there. And uh, so you go see the movies, but instead of having English subtitles, they have this Russian guy reading all the, the, the dialogue uh, with a thick Russian accent over the movie, as well as telling you, you know, now they're going to go to the store, things like that. So it isn't really like watching the movie at all. And I, I mention this because um, watching me or listening to me read this novel, particular novel, is, is going to be kind of like that, because it's um, a hard book to read aloud. Um, so I'm going to read a chunk of this, and then if you guys have questions or whatever, you know. And um, there's like only, there's, there's like two things you have to know. One is that the the person speaking is a 22-year-old um, French cannibal. And the other thing is that um, the the father of this 22-year-old French cannibal, who isn't actually his father, um, is is this or was this eccentric. Um, guy, a mad inventor who invented a way of speaking called the Marbled Swarm. And um, what he did was he took the greatest hits of all of the languages in the world, just the greatest hits, and he kind of blended them into, his, into French and created what he believed was this incredibly manipulative language that could seduce anyone into giving him money or sex or whatever. And um, he used that to become enormously wealthy and do a lot of evil things. And he taught it to the narrator, the son, one night. But he was kind of drunk. And the son was on ecstasy. And the son didn't quite get it. 
but the son nonetheless constructed um, a way of speaking based on the marbled swarm, which he calls the marbled swarm. And um, when he speaks, and, and in the case of this book, when he writes, that's what he's speaking in. <coughs> Before the ordinary building at 118 Rue de Turenne was remodeled by my father, it housed the oldest shoe factory in Paris. The amplifying taste for footwear rubber stamped by the likes of Vans and Nike had long since dashed its workforce into a skeleton crew, but before the geriatric owner swiped my father's credit card, it was still rattling along. Our home had previously and always been a mansion several stuffy blocks from the Eiffel Tower until, that is, my mother was discovered on the kitchen floor, zapped off her feet by an alleged brain tumor that had gone suspiciously undetected by her doctors, or so my father said. As time crawls, I've come to realize the subtitling my father gave our lives was a ruse no less designed to keep our views in check than the security guard-like monsters that evil stepmothers litter in their bedtime stories. Nonetheless, my mother's death left him disconsolate or rather inspired the diagnosis he gave to his performance, which, to be frank, seems increasingly bloodless in retrospect. Our mansion which he'd poo-pooed as too parochial in girth and stature to foreground his giant art collection, or rather, the bulky two or three dozen giant artworks he deemed investments was now additionally denounced as an engine of unbearable memories. After several months, the shoe factory was dialed back into a stack of spacious lofts, and my father rearranged our new chopped-up family in its layers. My father commandeered the top floor come penthouse, my younger brother Alphonse was installed just below him on the third floor, and my loft sat just below his on the building's second level. Alphonse will be puzzling to epitomize, not because anything about him would turn descriptive prose into a vampire's mirror, but difficult like reassembling a plane crash. Perhaps I'll dash him off for now as a dedicated fan of manga since he read Japanese comics so incessantly the volumes might as well have been his shirt collars, although fan sounds far too freelance. He was more a kind of mermaid stalled between his illustrated hero's printed pages where he longed to fly around on jetpack shoes and switch genders with a button push, and our heftier dimension where he survived but thought himself fatally ill-suited. Hundreds of utopian self-portraits were crammed into his hard drive where, using paint or Adobe Photoshop, he'd pried frames from the fatal scenes in some cartoon or childish film, then spent hours replacing the Roadrunner's wolf or freeze-dried Han Solo with a pancake of himself. Once when we were playing Truth or Dare, he chose Truth and when asked to be his death's designer, picked a hit-and-run accident by steamroller. Most effectively, for your reading purposes, he haunted several online chat rooms full of equally withdrawn kids and lying predators who lionized paper thinness and called themselves squish junkies. In the real world of school desks and sidewalks, Alphonse had his distant admirers, most of them too old to qualify comfortably as friends. It would be safe to say I was his only friend had our behavior when together not misused the classic meaning of that term. Better to say, were I the movie star my telegenic looks and presumptive manner warranted, he might have been some actor hired to portray me in my flashbacks. He treated every brush with me as though it was a precious opportunity to learn my latest tics and traits, then play them back like I were his, like I were his aerobics instructor. Consequently, 
I saw Alphonse as my imprecise reflection and the portrait of him that would occasionally materialize within the wash of my devoted likeness took the form of physical discrepancies or misinterpretations that were too piecemeal to appraise. Alphonse's only quote-unquote friends lived in the violent bric-a-brac universe of websites and chat rooms traveled by the squish junkies, the majority of whom preferred to smash cute things than be trampled, so whether they were friends or mutual conveniences is certainly debatable. My father stuck Alphonse with a nanny who, at the age of 24, still had the bowl haircut, jejun school clothes, and puerile interests of someone newly post-pubescent. Within days of being hired, Mon Petit Bichette, as he called himself, quit dressing and deporting like his prior ward come molesti, and colonized my brother's superhero look, Japanomania, and the general behavior Alphonse had watered down from mine. When Mon Petit Bichette wasn't sexting Alphonse, tailoring his pants into a second skin, or recycling his dirty socks as tea cozies, and that is not a case of me exaggerating. He occupied the loft before mine, below mine, on the first floor, where his nightly blasts of disco-era Claude Francois and hooting recitations of the song's feeble-minded lyrics would cause my furniture to move around my loft very slightly like grazing cows. As for the building's ground floor, I've never picked its rusty lock, if you can believe that. But then again, I've never stuck my head in sacre coeur for much the same reason. Just as I, don't, I needn't see a bunch of gilded Jesus statues to visualize an extra special church, whatever's buried in the dust down there undoubtedly deserves it. Each loft was designed, if one wants to call, a sterile subdivided stretch of low-lit rectangular nothingness a design by the architect Philippe Stark and featured a scatter of his, of his artsy, uncomfortable furniture. In the huge swaths of wall and floor space left unchecked by Stark's concept, my father laid out obstacle courses of his art holdings, exhibitions he claimed to have curated with such precision that the theme of each mini collection would have caused it to be titled with our respective first names had the building been open to the public. For a time, I was certain the lofts additionally disguised some creepy underpinnings, evil eye-like nitty-gritty, if you will, diabolic minutiae that my nervous system sensed even as its symptoms proved impalpable and whose existence I was neither to establish nor disprove until my father's sudden pell-mell death. An elevator, or rather, a trendy sculptor's perfect replication of the Shining's lift, but painted red inside instead of filled with blood, would drop Alphonse and me to street level or lift us to my father's digs for rare communal meals whenever he decided to admit he was in town. Bizarrely, my father's floor had been abridged into a small and strangely shaped apartment that hardly gouged the yawning volume in its disposal, an anomaly he claimed was neither fanciful nor frugal, but rather fallout from having to share his level with the gargantuan equipment that warmed and cooled the building. Like Alphonse, in one regard, I've never had friends, not in the give-a-shit sense, not even when I was too young to have selected them myself. Thus, having tons of downtime wherein to stage my wildest daydreams likely fast-tracked the internal monologue as you begun to get to know. I had liked Alphonse with a perfect lack of passion until he colluded with his nanny. Well, like might be too strong a word. Admired objectively, let's say. Let's say his beauty might have garnered him a fan base cruisier than mine, were he not more garbled by stylistics and forged from less Epicurean materials. Due to my father's wealth, 
ego, philanthropy, and conniving grip on words. He moved in starry social circles. There were rumors at one time that he'd fucked Isabel Adjani, the ethereal actress turned plastic surgeon's monster. Although my father seemed insulted by this premise, even then Adjani's buckling, placated face required a fog machine to be puffing in her photo sessions. It seemed quite a coincidence that she had famously retired for nine months just before Alphonse debuted in the arms of my thin, grimacing mother. Alphonse's outermost layer preserved the young Ajani's vaunted snowy skin, starless black hair, the same startled chocolate eyes that infatuated co-stars or stared convincingly through the windows of insane asylums, the congested lips, and like the actress in her least successful films, and unlike me, he struck everyone who cared to give our family as looking slightly too refrigerated. Had Alphonse not channeled his neurosis into a frenetic self-escape plan wherein my affectations formed the hatch, he might have grown depressed enough to find the little something extra to defrost his stiltedness in Emo's throttling wardrobe. Without a stylish herd in which to camouflage his weak links, he dressed like his manga heroes might have dressed where they inflated like balloons, which is to say dorkily. Alphonse might even be alive, sitting in a pose almost identical to mine, pretending to write his own memoir, his hand and pen jiggling one hair's breadth above an untouched page. But then I might be a suffocated nympho, so ultimately I have to say it's more productive that he's dead. Point is, until a series of events I'm preparing to address, he'd always bugged me with the feckless dedication of a housefly. But on what seemed an average afternoon, as I half observed my brother's stagey reenactment of who I'd been moments before, it occurred to me that his playback was somehow clingier. It seemed not the royal performance to which I'd grown lackadaisically accustomed, but something more daring, an act less bent on piecing me together through pinpoint accuracy or plagiarizing my reserve than geared to undermine the very fuss that caused my personality to barely surface in the first place. Previously, rare nods or smiles would be enough to keep my mirror image ambient. Now any sign of my approval caused Alphonse to mutiny, diversify, and grow ever more technically inaccurate. I felt less flattered by and independent of his sequel than challenged to keep up with its liberties. I began to see him as a stripper haggling with my equivalents. Were he not spoiled rotten like myself, I might have stuffed a wad of euros in his belt then, well, do what exactly was the problem? The weakest part of his impression has, had always been its hollowness, although I'll grant that void was not particularly his fault. I'm no extrovert, even when I'm yelling, die, you piece of shit, and every precocious, news-making, ten-year-old new Mozart in the world is eventually discovered to be a piano-playing parrot. Alphonse modeled the mechanics of my presence, but while his forgery was dutiful, it lacked the telltale oomph that came with my perverseness. This lost ingredient, while piddling in the grander scheme of me, think of the line between the car an actor drives into a wall and the car-like prop in which his lifelike dummy burns alive, and which had never seemed a flaw of his depiction when my viewing was more casual, now outstripped my loneliness as the major reason I was not unhappy to bump into him. In order to one-up my brother's mating dance, I undertook a bit of research into the sex practices of odd couples going back for centuries. Strangely at the time, if quite predictably to you, I seemed to feel the coziest and greatest kinship with a thread of history's most, most heinous boy killers, in particular the doings of one obscure but fascinating German individual. 
Klaus Free was a particle scientist who thought if he could humanize his grasp of nanoparticulates, he might become the world's first genius cannibal. Fatally stabbed by the very first boy slash future slab of meat he abducted, he left behind a notebook in which he'd repeatedly sketched and expounded upon the perfect human storm as he described it, a body type that, according to his findings, would both render art superfluous and, were Germany a jungle, send rivulets of spit down its population's teeth. I should add out of fairness that his theories have been razored into Kukiville by every learned historian for whom the cannibal is second nature. Their opinion being that Free was just a sick fuck and no evidence suggests that human taste buds are as picky as he posited. Need I even say that, at least in his scanned drawings I found online, had some fashion designer thought to translate them into couture, Alphonse's body could have smoothed them into leotards. In the weeks since Alphonse muscled through the sheen of my resemblance, he'd been cast as the romantic lead in every, every reverie I concocted. There wasn't a harmful prank or convoluted fuckfest that his imaginary figment hadn't rehearsed to a Kubrickian finish, but it wasn't until Free's ill-starred masterstroke hit home that I fight made my final cut. I hadn't chewed and swallowed anyone as of the period in question, but I'd felt and thought everything violent and ruinous of my clothing, this side of actually combusting into a pack of hungry tigers every time I got a hard on. I'd never even cooked myself an omelet. The illusory skin wedged between my fairyland of teeth would puncture like a bubble, tear from each anatomy with a pleasant sounding rip, and be transformed by my obedient taste buds from naughty sopping flesh and blood and muscle into a favorite food, which at that time was spaghetti bolognese. <laughs> Having preemptively tagged myself as gay, I was still too enthralled to the same-sex party line that an acrobatic fuck was the mom and pop of making out, and any partnership more offbeat, m much less one that challenged laws both French and biblical, constituted oneself hatred. By the way, I just had an awful thought, one you've no about been musing on for pages. Christ, I do go on, is what I thought, and my fingers literally tensed above the keyboard. Rather than offer you some insincere apology, I'll make a slightly premature admission that if you think I've dragged my story from its bearings, namely the Serpentine Chateau, its secretive owner, his doomed son, Serge, and that I've lost my proper place within it as your talky host, you're half wrong. Yes, this recent blather is a strike against my toned-down marble swarm, but it's also an assurance of my honesty, even when, as I've come to know and you will understand eventually, I was less finding my true self back then or living day to day in the democratic sense than enacting a life no more incipient than a toy's. If I'd taken I don't know how many words of caution in my life and spun my insights thusly but within the earshot of a reputable psychologist, well, I have no idea. For his 12th birthday, Alphonse asked me on what amounted to a date. His chosen getaway was Die, Color, Die, an annual convention wherein the latest manga, anime, candy-colored gadgets, and other Japanese playthings with internal hard drives were unveiled to thousands of Asiatic Parisians and freeloaders like my brother in the Parc des de Expositions. Billed and barely marketed for years as your basic Japan Expo, 
The rechristened dye color dye had a screaming jam-packed advertising scheme to match its switch-out title, and one could not have traveled via metro to or from Bastille, Belleville, or other hipster centrals in many months without trying to decode its vast headache-inducing posters. Thus, I pictured an event traipsed by coolness-seeking fashionistas, its aisles as wan and hushed by pretense as the runways of Chanel or Gareth Pugh, and I gambled that Alphonse would rein his usual Narcissus at the pond routine into, at best, a pitiable nerdiness that might, at worst, cause me to blush occasionally. The only catch involved keeping my newly motivated hands off Alphonse's freshly gripping figure and folded in my lap throughout the car, the car trip to and fro, during which we'd be dangerously soundproofed in the rear compartment of the limousine my father had unhelpfully rented for the occasion. Luckily, the route took us through Paris and not a Saudi Arabian desertscape at night. Vacations aside, I've been a hardcore Parisian since I was born the way dinosaurs stuck in tar pits might as well be fossils. So, once Esmir had eased our, our road hog through the cunning intersection where Rue de Turenne crosses, kills, and swipes cars from the Rue de Bretagne, then somehow squeezed on the onto the tiny Rue Vide Temple, its close-knit historically important views enlivened my Olympian detachment and I fended off the hanky-panky building up on our respective tongues and fingers with the almost unbroken gushing of a tour guide. By the time Asmir offloaded us at Parc d'Expositions, I had waxed emblazoned and spit-polished a fairly average set of boulevards into a virtual Champs-Élysées at Christmas, and Alphonse, who found any city without flying cabs and giant evil robots severely lacking, was my numbed, sensibly tight-lipped hostage. I'd accompanied my father to the very same convention hall years before for a like-minded fair at which the tourism bureaus from hundreds of unpopular countries hoped to sell French travel agents on the blueness of their lakes and the alluringly slight differences in the layouts of their golf courses. I believe he had a cockamamie scheme to turn the art he'd bought into the centerpiece of a museum in some country so bereft of wonders that it would be a major tourist attraction by default. As was usually the case when he hoped to close a deal, I'd been drafted in as his accoutrement in hopes of dazzling sentimentalists or pedophiles with his prestigious genes, which of course weren't his to begin with. All I can remember is my hair was patted into a, an oily clump and that my ass was groped surreptitiously so often and invasively by prospective clients that I suffered muscle cramps in my posterior for days, requiring the aid of an osteopath who also took my disadvantage as an opportunity to help himself. Were I a physicist, I could explain why dye color dye, although no more towering or spread out than the dolled up shanty town that formed the so-called International Salon du Monde, made the same convention hall that could have covered several Notre Dames with room to spare feel as claustrophobic as a crawl space. I've never been the kind of person who gyrates into toy stores, not even when my love of things was new and sloppy. After years of hobbling stiffly through Nuit Blanches and theme parks, I began to answer invitations to hit the town with, no thank you, I have an allergy to stimulus. Francois, the most piquant of my cannibal associates, once remarked upon the irony of my aporophobia as one specialist has diagnosed the problem, given my insistence on talking as though I represented the EU in some unofficial capacity. While my fear of excess stimulus predates my, let's say, punk adaptation of the marbled swarm, it's quite possible the swarm's repellent quality appealed to me unconsciously. Fortunately, just as Alphonse began to tow me by one sweating hand into the 
fairs storm front of clogged and supersaturated shopping aisles. The word plank was shrieked by someone or other in the thick crowd tussling around us. After some jostling in our vicinity, Alphonse was mob-hugged by two Asian, perhaps, things, female, I guessed at first, or maybe young drag queens, I wasn't sure, who had apparently recognized him from the avatar he used when chatting in the squish junkie enclaves I mentioned earlier. Plank was Alphonse's 2D alter ego, and if the glittering block letters on their badges were any indication, the intruders' names were Slat and Log. These flatzos, the term that I would later learn was proper for their artificial species, seemed less to have been born and raised than magically peeled from the cover of an especially creative manga, than resized to teenage height by some miraculous process that left their torsos no thicker than guitar cases. In place of heads of hair, they wore cardboard coiffures shaped like Napoleon's sideways helmet and painted the red of rooster's mohawks. The curving tops were scissored into uneven saw teeth and or maybe sun rays that were symbolic of the flatso's unkempt hair. The duo's outfits appeared to be ankle-length pinafores ironed flat as paper fans, then starch dipped in vats of liquid lollipop, then somehow crammed over two real bodies without collapsing their rib cages. The truly disconcerting aspect, even to a skeptic like myself, were the optical illusions that some makeup artists had fashioned from their faces. I have yet to grow a wrinkle, so my bathroom cabinet remains as spotless as a prisoner's, and I don't know about cosmetics or how it is that 70-something Catherine Deneuve still looks 50-something. Thus, I can't tell you why Slat and Log's faces appeared from certain angles to have no more terrain or substance than a presidential portrait on a commemorative plate. Of course, Alphonse, to whom the first dimension promised, well, virtually everything, was beyond enamored of these handmade slips of human and over-eager to resemble them, so before I knew it, the pair had hustled him away towards some flatso recruitment booth, and I was inching far behind them on my skidding shoes. Once, when I was still an only child, and my father was quote-unquote friendly with Isabel Adjani, I was forced to accompany them down the red carpet at the Festival de Cannes, while two firing squads of paparazzi used the flash attachments on their cameras as automatic weapons, knocking down their roped enclosure to surround us, all the while yelling, little boy, is your father fucking her? Over and over in hundreds of foreign accents at once. In that case, I literally fainted and was carried into the theater like a dead infant prop by Isabel. If you're a certain kind of person, you might even have seen the very shots of my humiliating moment on her official website, which I will mention she has conveniently mislabeled as among her greatest roles. Does that convey my trauma? Shall I boringly compare myself to the biblical Egyptian spearmen tripping over themselves in the gushy mud and piles of flopping fish between the Red Sea's reconvening halves? I don't believe I can do this. If vampire movies hadn't been the franchise of that year and were wastrel fashion models and feeble-looking bands not so incredibly in vogue, and if a wary-eyed pallor were not, as a consequence, the diamond in the rough of facial options, my sad state might have turned the single-minded nerds and fops moseying, me, moseying around me into good Samaritans. Oh, let's stop there. Thank you. Uh, anything you want to know? <laughs> yes. Um, this is your least Brasonian work to date, I think. Perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> 
it's like a thick, rich malt here. It's not a you know, cup of tea. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Uh, this was, uh, to a degree, I understand, inspired by the character that these performers in Dublin uh, Big Ben. Is that a source, but not what? No. Uh, this French actor Pierre Clementi is also a director. He's he's actually not in that part I read, but he's like everywhere else, and it's it's just inspired by him in general. I mean, there's a scene where the the narrator watches Pigpen and 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 is inspired to become a cannibal because Pierre Clementi is his father. Yeah. How long have you been uh, <laughs> kite? How long have you uh, been writing the score, and how long have you kind of hold over? Norman. Um, Moldova, the concept about six years. It's a, I mean, it's, I, I started wanting to do a book about, canna, about a cannibal like about six years ago. Um, and then it took me a really long time uh, to figure out the voice because uh, um, in my last kind of recent stuff, it, I'd gotten really, 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 really plain spoken and really minimal. And, I, and it, just, it was just getting kind of dull to me to do that. It was kind of too easy or something. So I wanted to make, I wanted to make the writing really, really dense. And I, really, I wanted it to be really, really multitasking, like as much as possible that it would do like all these things at once. So then I just kind of experimented around and uh, tried all the kinds of different things and tried to, t to take, because I like I liked layering and I like all that kind of, I like really tricky experimental prose and I, I always try to do that, but I tried to smush it, like I tried to make it as compact as possible. And then at some point um, that voice kind of came up and then, uh, and then it was a matter of um, figuring out what it can and can't do because it can only do certain things. It has very limited, I mean, I'd, so I'd, try to push it towards sentimentality or something and it would know. And it, there's many things it can't do. Then I had to figure out what it could do and then just really work with that. So then that point it, I started writing and it took about two and a half years. Yeah. So you arrive at the density and then you come back and rewrite? Well, no, I, I figured out the voice and I did a bunch of uh, experiments with it. And there's some, there's some pieces that I published that are kind of like the early versions of this. There's a thing called uh, the little attentive line editor that was in my last book, that was kind of like the beginnings of it. But yeah, I just I just had, I just played with it until I knew how until it was like second nature because it's not, it's not like my voice at all. So I had to like I don't know maybe like an actor learns or something there to play a part. And then and then um, no, but once like I just tested until I got it down and then I just took off, you know. And I had a I have all these there's many 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 structural things because there's all these secret passages and things connect up in these weird ways that you don't really get when I read a piece of it and so I had to figure all that stuff out but then I then I just then once I got the voice I just kind of went with it you know. Do you always do the voice first and then and then is that how you write? Yeah. Different each time. No, the voice I have to get the voice first and then the structure. So. So yeah, you know, it's like, uh, yeah, I can't, I can't, because um, I, I don't really have a natural voice when I write, or I don't think I do. So my voice is always really constructed. It's always like, a, I always have to do a lot of work to, 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 to find a good voice that interests me. You don't start from an idea or a story, you start from a voice. Well, no, I have a basic thing. It's like, I wanted to write a book about a cannibal, and I wanted to... Um, write a book because I was in France and I wanted to write a book set in France and I had a few little things like that um, and 
I wanted to be, I wanted to, to access like my, real, I had this really big interest in like haunted houses and secret passages and video games and things that kind of are, work that way. And so I had that, but it was pretty, you know, vague. But then, you, then I had to get the voice. And then when I build the structure, I build this really complicated structure that, that's like graphs and things that kind of organize the whole thing and how it's going to work. And then when I have that in place, I just start improvising. So, because then, because if the structure's in my head, I can just improvise it, and I, I do so much editing that if something goes off offline, I just come back and. So, yeah. I don't want to watch you implode, but um, I thought it was very kind. Brett Easton Ellis called you a romantic. Your voice romantic. Uh huh. Called you a romantic writer. What would you say in response? Yeah, I'm totally romantic. <laughs> <laughs> The, when people call me a nihilist, that's when I get pissed off. Because that's when I'm not. Certainly compared to Brett, I'm a romantic. <laughs> What's the worst response you've ever had to your work? Mm. Well, you know, there's a response to the, that I always have gotten, and I get it a little less now. But it's that that I'm that I'm propagating like ugly things, and that I'm a, a shock meister, and that I'm I know bad boy. It's just that, and that always is there, and uh, that that I deliberately am trying to shock people, and you know, which has never ever been my my goal. So that's what that's the only one that really really bothers me is when people. When people just say I'm just like doing what I do is really crude and you know and they th when they think it's sadistic because it's my work isn't about sadism or masochism at all but so it, it bothers me because because you know there's, there's that subject matter that I like to work with it just blinds a lot of people people just see red and and I always thought that I could circumvent it and I always keep trying to change the way I write and stuff thinking like okay maybe you know I can try to get through that, but but you, I, it's weird to realize that like there are people who just if you write explicitly about those things, they simply cannot see what you're doing. So I guess that's that's totally the only one that bothers me. Is that more of an American criticism? Yeah, I don't really you don't get that in Europe because I mean what I do over there is very much in a tradition that like all those countries have had long traditions of artists that are transgressive. So to me, they just you know, they just see me as as being part of that, and it's completely legitimate. I mean, all those, you know, people, the writers, you know, Jeanne Bataille, for instance, or whatever, whoever in France, or they're very respected figures. They're not, they're not, uh, um, you know, over here, there's not many, there's not much history of that here. It's just why, like, for instance, I always get compared to Burroughs, because it's like there's nobody else to compare me to, you know, except Kathy Acker, perhaps, you know, and it's like there's not a whole lot, so here it's still, people are still shocked by it, and they don't take it seriously, they don't, they don't see it really as being, like a serious subject, so and they think it's just I don't know you know they just don't you have to you have to do modulate it in some certain way or you have to not have sex in it too much like if you're Cormac McCarthy you can get away with it because because whatever I mean he's a great writer but I mean he doesn't he plays with it in a certain way that's like Faulknerian and so they can see it as a part of a tradition but what I do is really kind of like you know it doesn't have that it's very European what I do. So, in, in that case, do you feel more at home writing in France right now, or do you kind of miss like going against the grain more with America, or is that anything that concerns you at all? No, nah, you just when you're writing, it doesn't matter where you are. So, 
Yeah. Can this be translated in the French? It's, it's going to be really hard. It's being translated. Yeah, the, the eight translators turned it down and one finally accepted it. <laughs> It's, it's really, 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 I don't know if you can tell, but it's going to be really hard to translate. And the translator is going to meet with me like every week to go over it because it's so hard. So It's being translated into French and Spanish so far. Yep. So is it hard because of the vocabulary? Some of it's so contemporary or slang, so it's or colloquial, some of the diction in it, but that's what makes it hard to translate? No. It, the quality of the phrasing in the sentence? Yeah, it's just the... the, the, the French is really the sentence structure is completely different, and um, and they um, and this has a very particular rhythm. It's very rhythmic, and it's playing with this kind of. It's using a rhythm in a very particular kind of way, and you can simply cannot get that same rhythm, for instance, because the the, the sound and the the way the sen every, you know, everything about French is a completely different rhythm. So they have to find a new rhythm. Plus, all the sentences are backwards, and plus there's lots of things you can't do in French. I like to talk about. I like to do this thing where people speak of other people as it. You know, it's like to objectify them to the degree the way they become it. I do that all the time. You can't do that in French. Absolutely cannot. You have to choose he or she. And there's millions of those things. And, and also, the, yeah, with the, with, the, with the colloquial stuff, it's, you know, they have to find a French equivalent and the French don't really have, they speak English, you know, a lot. They'll just say fuck, you know, because there's nothing, I mean, it's not really one that's exactly like that. So... It's a lot of things. Also because it's really layered. And to have to do it, to have to change the rhythms and everything, and then also get the different layering that's going on. Because like... Um, There's a lot of alliteration and rhyme in, in each sentence. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, there's this thing I'm doing that isn't really apparent, or maybe it isn't apparent even when you read it, but... but uh, I, 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 wonder, I thought about a lot about music is mixed, so, and... Um, and how there's like you can have like 24 tracks and they're all playing it, but you can raise and raise the levels of like the voice or the guitar or the drums or something, and and to the foreground. But the other stuff is always there, so you still have the anticipation of that and you still hear it. And I was thinking about that with this. So there's all this stuff going on where there's like what he's telling you is going on, but then because of the word choice, it's referencing referencing some other thing that's going on than all that you've already heard. So you're getting this weird kind of psychedelic effect. You know, and um, and I, can't, I don't know how they can possibly do that in translation. So, <laughs> huh? No, they like it. They just can't make it. <laughs> you know. Hey, do you have um, or do you mind naming um, inspirations or heroes since you were little? With you know, just going through like before you were. Publishing person yourself, people like who you're out, and writer heroes, you mean? Yeah, yeah or it's creative, or whatever. Maybe I don't know if writers is what drove you to write. Oh, um, Rambo was really big to me when I was a kid, and Saad, and Disneyland. Really, really like Disney stuff. And um, music, a lot of music. I've always been really, really influenced by music. So, so I mean, I mean, so I was always listening to that. So I'm sure, like, whenever I was a teenager, I, I'm sure I was like, it was, I was probably being really influenced by, you know, obvious people like Golden Underground or Love or the bands that were kind of the forefront bands. So. And still, this day, it's like music is really, really influential. I mean, I, a lot of my stuff comes from listening to bands I really like and then trying to 
to figure out how I can do that in fiction, do the same thing in fiction. So, but there's millions. Robert Bresson is my favorite artist. So, Robert Pollard of Guided by Voices is my other favorite artist. I look like him. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks. Do you feel about New Order reforming without Peter? Who cares? <laughs> I don't know. These re reunion things are so boring. But I mean, in terms of layering. Uh, yeah, I don't. I can't even think of that as anything but just like money and greed. I can't think about New Order. Re it just doesn't mean anything to me. Magazines reforming, that kind of interests me. The New Order? <laughs> <laughs> yes. There's uh, a lot of sculpture in the marble form, and as you were reading, I was thinking about how that related to the protagonist brother's desire for flatness, mm -hmm. and also how you know converting someone into a character in a text is a similar like flattening process. And um, I guess uh, because so much of the voice is is involved in this kind of compression of the narrative into this weird come to presence, and I was thinking how that's maybe shifted by the revelation at the end. And I was just wondering how this interest in sculpture and uh, in creating like spatial dimensions in language came out of um, the initial idea of cannibalism. Cannibalism. Um, well, the, I always wanted the cannibalism to be more about it, I, it was like a setup for the way the the novel works. So, because there really isn't much cannibalism in the book, it's just a lot of talk about cannibalism. But but I, I bet it was the, the 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 novel eating itself. Basically, it's like, you know, so because um, it kind of devours itself, and he devours himself, the narrator and stuff, and he literally does actually, um, and and I don't know. I mean, the spatial stuff with a with a you mean with sculpture. It's you know it's like. I'm just interested in the three-dimensional space, you know, of that. I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm, I always think about sculpture when I'm writing. I always want it to be three-dimensional. Especially this one's, I want it to be three-dimensional. So, but I don't know. But sculpt, the sculpture in the, in the cannibalism, I don't know. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I have to think about it. Uh, I was wondering, sir, if you uh, spoke a little more about transgression and uh, seeing yourself as a tradition of transgressive literature. But how do you see, like, with the internet, like, uh, your mom, it's easier to find transgressive stuff on, like, 4chan or something. And sure. uh, a lot of modern literature. But yeah. interestingly, a lot of your recent work seems to incorporate the internet within it. So how do you see, like, transgression as a subject or an idea changing or does it have a future at all? Um, yeah, it does. I just, I just, I don't know exactly. Yeah, I mean, clearly it does because, I mean, you know, I mean, on the, you know, if you want to see, if you want to incorporate horror movies and that kind of stuff into it, obviously it's very, very current. And, uh, um, I don't know, you know, it's just about representation, you know. I mean, I'm interested in, I mean, the, the fact that the internet has all that there and the ways you find it and the kind of particular quality of, you know, that there's, that, that it's secretive and not secretive and all those kind of stuff really interests me and I, and it, I incorporate it into how I represent it in the novels, but, 
I don't see it dying, you know. I don't. I, don't, I mean, it just depends. It's all about. It's partially about age too, because I mean, I, I'm always getting these like young people who read my books, and they'll like read like closer or one of my early books, and they'll be like, I couldn't sleep, and it made me fix sick to my stomach, and I'm like, really? But you know, maybe I think the fact that books are becoming so marginalized, and books are becoming such a specialty thing, and nobody really looks to books anymore. That maybe the maybe the book has more room to to do that kind of thing. Maybe there's maybe you know I mean because actually reading a text that's fiction that's transgressive is going is, is is increasingly a minor activity. So I'm kind of thinking maybe the book is where it's going to can stay alive and can, it can be, it can evolve you know. But I don't know. It's you know it's it's in progress. So. Like you, I'm just wondering about it myself mostly, you know? Yeah. Sure. Um, so, like, overall, in your work and the way you talk and the way you express yourself, the relationship between, like, generosity and compassion and love and extreme violence and oppressive sexuality, like, do you think that's an inherent connection or is it something that you're working? Kind of both. I mean, uh, I mean, I mean, what I do is is really, really intuitive in a way. I mean, I'm, I mean, um, I mean, I could write about other stuff if I needed to, but, but, um, but it's really pure and honest to me to write what I do. But at the same time, I'm very, very, very calculating. I mean, my writing is really super calculating. So I mean, I, and I'm aware of how you can play those things together. And it's really important, especially if you're going to deal with this kind of subject matter. You have to be really generous and gentle and things. So I'm always trying to to think of, to try to be generous to the reader in some way, because I'm, you know, for the reasons I was saying earlier, you know, you have to find just the right tone to. To, to get people to trust you, you know, especially if you're so calculating. <laughs> so I don't know. I mean, like I, I, I'm really, really calculating about that kind of stuff. But, 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 but it's like I'm making designs based on stuff I don't understand about myself. You know, I'm like, so I don't really understand like a lot of why I do what I do. But, but I know how to organize it and structure it. So it's really hard for me to really know some of that stuff because it's um. Because I think a lot about technique, because the other stuff's too hard for me to think about. So I'm always thinking about technique as a way to organize it, and 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 it's it's hard for me to ma to think about why I do things, you know. Thank you. Thank you, guys. You have been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.